0: This week on Hacker and the Fed, we discussed a leaked ransomware negotiation, how Twitter's new verification system may improve security, and the NSA releases their best practices for securing your home network.
1: Hector Monseager was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks. Former FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participate in some of the world's most infamous hacks
0: that caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent working my entire career in cybersecurity and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegur. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the codename Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested him and convinced him to work with the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you doing this week?
1: I'm doing great, my friend. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing good. You know, big episode we had last week, all the cybersecurity news happening. I think we have another one this week. We got quite a few stories to
1: go through. Oh, yeah. It's been a busy New Year so far.
0: <laughs> yeah, cybersecurity is uh, is back on top. We're not talking about uh, COVID as much, uh, and so it's good. We're moving forward and but the problem is a lot of people are getting hacked into and there's a lot of ransomware out there so we're seeing a lot more problems come up
1: oh yeah well we're also seeing some some victims kind of uh you know fighting back against some of these ransomware groups so i'm kind of interested in talking about that today
0: it's interesting you bring that up because uh our first story we're going to cover is a conversation a published chat log i think you're you know, well aware of published chat logs. Uh, sometimes Molsec <laughs> had some uh, chat logs, some private chat logs published on them back in the day, uh, which we could talk about if you ever wanted to. Uh, sure. But, but this chat log is between a ransomware cyber criminal and Royal Mail. Um, it was really an interesting read, and again, we, we'll put our link uh, in the description if you want to read all the details and the back and forth between it. But uh, it was really a good insight into how you know ransomware works and how they negotiate, and, and some rules that we might learn from uh, what's a good negotiation and a bad negotiation for you know any uh, any systems out there that are a victim of ransomware.
1: A lot of these chat logs have been published over the last two years. Not only by the actor, but also the victim, as well as researchers right, who kind of stumble upon uh, communications between victims and the bad actors. What I've always found interesting is kind of the approach of the ransomware operators, where initially they kind of treated like a like a normal, you know, IT support chat. Hey, by the way, if you would like to decrypt your files, here's how much you have to pay. Yada yada yada. Here's how you do it. Here's the next steps. Otherwise, and this is where I guess to the super criminal part, when they become jerks. Otherwise, we're going to leak it all.
0: Yeah, they even talk about like pen testing. Like, oh, we'll t- we'll cover my pen testing charges later. Um, you know, the, you know, aka talking about you know, fix how your system got infiltrated. It is unique how they treat it as a, a business, like just an IT third party vendor uh, approach business.
1: I agree. It's it's so weird. But not only that, there's very little empathy when you when you kind of reading through this. From the part of the the bad actor, I mean it, it's to be expected I mean these guys are essentially criminals, but you know the kind of, the way they approach the victims, the kind of the way that they deal with the numbers, and we'll get we'll get into that in a second you know they're they're guesstimating how much they could probably get from a company based off of reported you know uh yearly income, which is really not realistic, you know that.
0: It's funny that you read it and you see the lack of empathy from the bad guy. I and, and as you said, it, uh, this is the only time I realized it. I read it and saw how much of an asshole the victim kind of was in this one, uh, trying to stretch things out, kind of trick the bad guy into doing things. Like so, it, it, it's it, it was unique that we saw it from those two different perspectives. I saw, it, I was looking at it more from the uh, the, the the victim here that was like you know almost trying to. Uh, trick the bad guy, you know, and, and I have zero sympathy for the bad guy in this one. Uh, he broke into a system. It was charging someone well, at the point eighty million million, wanted to give them 80 million, required $80 million for decryption. And the logic where they got to that, it was interesting to me. And this is really kind of something we should talk about with the numbers that you brought up. The bad guy wants $80 million, which is a half a percent of the revenue, which he thought the company made $640 million. But then he brought up that if, i post these files your government is going to fine you four percent so 80 million dollars is is a lot cheaper than the four percent your government's going to charge you for these things which i found very interesting that they're playing you know governmental rules regulator rules against themselves in order to say hey this payment's reasonable
1: (laughs) oh yeah well that's that's like criminal logic you know yeah, you don't need to you don't need to stop getting high. Just, just, just buy the drug bill for me and I'll give you a two for one special. Um, don't worry about it. It's gonna cost you more if you go if you go to your hospital and, and detox. It's it's terrible to see folks get in this position. But it definitely highlights a few things for me. I mean it highlights one the importance of any organization to take the security serious. I'm happy to say that you know now, of uh, years and years into ransomware, now we're finally seeing organizations taking their security serious, which you know' debatable, depending on how you feel about it. You know I, I've heard some people say that this is this is ridiculous. Organizations should have been putting budget aside for security programs years ago. but I, I'm more realistic, and i, I my approach is, look, I, I'm just glad that organizations are doing that today. Um, and I'm also glad that at least here in the U.S., I can't speak for the rest of the world, but at least here in the U.S., you know, there's certain states that are starting to require either some sort of insurance policy, and we'll get into that topic another day, or they're requiring some sort of breach notification process. Which, uh, which for a while there, really wasn't a process. So even though the numbers are kind of down for ransomware groups, it's still going strong. In fact, I saw, I saw kind of in passing on Twitter that Lockbit is kind of merging with another group and, and or they're absorbing different technologies. When I say technologies, I'm talking about different ransomware payloads into their ecosystem. So they're just growing, they're seeing money, and it's not gonna stop.
0: So I also going through this chat log, you know, they came up with a few things that from my investigator eye. That kind of tripped my uh, my mind in here. At one point, where they're talking about how they're 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 asking for less than the government regulators, he says we're asking for eight times less than your state. Not many people in the United States call the government their state. Um, you know, that's a kind of a a Russian based thing. So, Lockbit. I mean, do we know that's definitively in Russia, or are these clues to be pulled out of these chat logs?
1: Yeah. I mean, the the general consensus is that Lockbit is a, a Russian group or Eastern European group, for the most part. That's kind of the consensus. Now, um, I think a moment ago you said the United States. I think it, it was referencing the United Kingdom, right? Because even, even in the United Kingdom, they don't have like states like, like they, have, they do in Russia.
0: Yeah, exactly. They don't call it the state. They don't talk about the, the the British government as the state. Maybe they do. Maybe I'm missing that one. The other aspect is he talks about his internet speed. Um, being you know fifty kilobits per second, uh, and that only sending files between uh, fifty and hundred uh, megabytes at most. Uh, another limitation, a clue, uh, you know, for for me to when i go going through the chat log.
1: Well, it, it could also be that the the person behind the chat is just kind of like a like one of those you know support chat folks. You know, like maybe maybe they're outsourced. When you start looking at some of these groups, depending on who you're looking at, you know, they're kind of outsourcing different elements of their organization. Uh, a, a great example would be like the initial entry specialist or whatever it is that they call them. I think that was the word or initial access specialist. And these are the guys that just break into a network. They'll deploy an agent or some sort of C2 agent. And then once confirmed that the network belongs to a corporate uh, environment, then they'll kind of sell it back or give it back upstream to the ransomware group. Um, and then from there, the ransom group will kind of operate on the systems network, gain access to Active Directory and, and uh, administrative permissions, and then work on backups and encryption. You know, so yeah, I mean, it could be outsourced or it could be yeah, maybe one of the operators. But I, I tell you, with the amount of victims that they have, I cannot see core members of a ransomware group working IT support or those those, those communications.
0: So I will say the one, the one last phrase that I pulled out of this that I thought was the, you know sort of interesting, maybe the audience wouldn't pick up on this, is thousands of people have successfully decrypted their files for almost four years. I can tell you for a fact that that line would be used at your sentencing hearing. Uh, reading that before the judge and saying, judge, in their own words, they know that they've had thousands of victims and they've been doing this for almost four years. Uh, that is a, a criminal enterprise. So phrases like that are going to come back to bite you in the ass. Oh yeah <laughs> uh, some of the stuff that they, uh, they the recommendations at the end of this uh, the article you know if you're dealing with ransomware uh, and you're going to talk directly to the the cyber criminals is you know make contact, request proof of, of data theft, um, request full lists of files and data samples, and, and also you know requesting the ability to decrypt these files so um, you know, one of the things that I saw in here, you know, they were sending them like memory dumps and things that they would, could use to maybe trick these guys into decrypting things that uh, that that would help them in their investigation, and versus just the the proof. And they kept saying, you know, uh, we need large files decrypted. We want. We've heard other people say that you guys can't decrypt large files. You know, it was sort of pushing the guy to the brink. But I'll tell you, uh, at no point did the ransomware cyber criminals uh, want to walk away, even when they said, you know, they're like, just tell me how much you'll pay. So push these guys, you know, try to get as much out of them as you can.
1: At the end of the day, money talks. If if your organization is in that position, then do what's right for you. Right. I, I personally, you know, I, I've been I've been uh, <laughs> you know, going back to the Bush days, you know, the whole uh, we do not uh, negotiate with terrorists still stuck in my head. Um, if I was, if I was, you know, part of an organization uh, where we lost some files and we have some sort of working backup systems, I would not be negotiating with them. But again, it's it's different, you know, case by case and organization by organization. The one thing I would advise for any potential victim is that if something like this happens, don't talk to these guys. Try to reach out to professionals to do it for you. There are organizations out there, without naming companies, but there are organizations out there that will interface with these ransomware operators. They kind of help n- navigate you through the process.
0: Yeah, they have experience. They, they, they've done this before. This isn't them reinventing the wheel. Uh, they know what works with these guys and what doesn't work with these guys. So, yeah, you know, look for someone with experience in dealing with it, this sort of thing.
1: Absolutely. Because the one thing you don't want to do is get into a chat with these guys and then they're making you run things. And now all of a sudden you're compromised and the organization's rehacked. Just avoid all of that. Bring in professionals to help kind of deal with this problem. Uh,
0: with that being said, on to the next story, Hector. The uh, title being Cyber Criminals Increasing Recruiting Tech and IT Pros Across the Dark Net. So this article talked about job ads and resumes being posted on 155 Darknet forums. Uh, Looking for illegal groups are searching to find tech talent uh, and offering competitive salaries, bonus, promotions, and other perks, much like the legitimate counterparts. Resumes and job postings for criminal enterprises. Uh, It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of touched on this story a moment ago, right, where we talked about, you know, how some parts of operations for these ransomware operators are being outsourced to, to individuals, right, contractors. And this kind of leads into that conversation where uh, we've seen and researchers have seen over a period of time where these, these groups that are now making a ton of cash by means of cryptocurrency, of course, now they need help. They're trying to scale their operations, but they cannot scale with a six-man team. So now they have to take some of the bread that they're making, some of the cash that they're making, and hire more you know, outside contractors to kind of help them scale the process. As you can imagine, and this is, I'm gonna just throw it out there immediately. This opens up the opportunity for organizations like the FBI and others to kind of sneak their way into some of these groups, assuming that these groups, you know, um, have weak operational security, you know, um, or their operational security policies are weak in general. Then, yeah, that would help that, you know, potential investigations and so on. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say that people are indeed applying for these jobs and they're probably getting paid uh, pretty well for essentially breaking the law uh, across the world. And it just works because there's money involved.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're talking about salaries. The salaries are based in, in U.S. dollars between $1,300 and 4000 per month, saying they're, they're seeing some offerings as high as $20,000 per month. You know, the problem with this is being that you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from. You don't know if you're going to be paid. I, I worked a case uh, called Rove Digital. They were a group in Estonia that were passing out a DNS changer. Um, it was a part of a codec for watching uh, adult films online. Inside the codec was the malware. Uh, it got on your computer and it changed your DNS settings. And I'll, I'll explain some of that. So DNS settings is... is Donate domain name services. So how that works is, you know, every website has an IP address, sort of a telephone number to find it. And so when you type in hackerinthefed.com, it's, your computer changes into a number through DNS uh, and then finds where that server is and is able to, to send you to the right website. This software changed that. So you thought you were dialing a certain number and it was going back and, and, and going to a different IP address. Um, That's how it infected your computer. But long story short, this organization grew. Uh, There was a main guy who came up with it, but they started hiring people. I ended up arresting six people over there. One of them came to the United States. We brought back to the United States. He he really was just a low-level guy that was meant to set up infrastructure. He set up servers. He set up anything that needed to have the, the infrastructure for the network run. He wasn't like a hardened cyber criminal. He had just applied for a job uh, and got caught up. Now, did he know after he got in that it was a criminal enterprise? I think he figured it out. He knew how things were working and what it was working on. But I don't think he you know, said, hey, let me join this criminal organization and do this thing. He just applied as an IT guy. And guess what? He got arrested, sent to jail for many years. Um, and I think he's probably back in Estonia now. So these things happen. And you know, you're facing whatever... Repercussions. Let's say you know he wasn't part of defending the network. Uh, his job wasn't you know security. So when you know the network gets taken down by the FBI, you're going to get wrapped up in that.
1: Absolutely, because now you're part of a conspiracy, even if it's accidental. But now let's look at this case with this specific story. Right, these job postings are actually hosted on darknet forums. The people that are applying for these jobs are uh, very well aware. That they're participating in, in some sort of criminal enterprise, at the very least, a conspiracy. So, yes, the money might seem good. You might look at 20 grand a month and say, wow, that sounds amazing. I could definitely do that. But the reality is, is that once that operation crumbles and you have law enforcement from around the world investigating and tracking you, you're going down, you're going down hard, just like you are a member of the quote unquote executive team, right?
0: Yeah, you bring up an excellent point there that, that because where these postings and you're looking are on dirty websites, that's going to be, again, used you at your sentencing hearing. Uh, you knew from the very beginning that you were applying for a job that, that was dirty, um, you know, which uh, brings up a story, you know, uh, the Silk Road case. And people probably know about that one. You know, it's an online drug market website that that I was a part of a team that took down. You know, at the very beginning, it was run by a guy the, the whole time. It was run by a guy named Ross Ulbrich. Uh, but at the very beginning, he posted that, hey, I need help with Bitcoins and I need help with a .onion website. If you have help, email me. And, and that's one of the ways we caught him was this posting. you know, Things like that on a regular forum, uh, like on a cryptocurrency forum or something like that, those people might not know what they're getting into. Uh, hey, I just need help running a, a website that, that has cryptocurrency on it. It's hard to prove, you know, that you did know that something criminal was happening. Uh, but, but this one particular, you know, you, you're right in posting saying that because the postings are on the dark web, they are on, like, criminal organization forums, that, that that's going to definitely be used against you.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, look, imagine this, right? Imagine a scenario where you apply for a legitimate-looking job on a legitimate-looking forum, okay? You get hired. It turns out that these guys are part of a criminal enterprise. That sucks, but at least you have some argument. You have a a bit of way, a leeway a little bit to kind of defend yourself and say, look, you know, yes, I got bamboozled. I eventually figured out this was wrong. There's some potential for uh, plausible deniability somewhere. At the very least, you could defend yourself. Not so much in this case. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, and it's something I've said before, you know, you know, Chris, from my past, I've made mistakes in the past. I am not proud of my past. Um, I'm glad for the lessons I've learned from that past. But the one thing that I, I, you know, I try to do these days is if I speak to someone and I feel like they're heading in the wrong direction, uh, or even if they're listening to here, one of our audience members is looking at something like the story and saying, wow, I could make 20 grand a month. Let me try that out. The reality is my friends, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's going to destroy your life. And by the time that you're done with the entire affair, you just lost five or 10 years of your life, and now you have to start from scratch. Then you have to prove yourself to the community that you once worked in because folks really don't, do not want to hire someone that messed up in the same job that they're applying for, right? My, my take here is I love talking about these stories because it allows us to kind of, you know, hopefully sway some folks away from that
0: yeah hopefully our young listeners are are listening to your message i mean you've said it before we've had cody who is recursion in in little on before saying the same thing uh that it's just not worth it It, it, it's too hard to bounce back and and it be successful from it you know so so stay away from it i know the lore of it's out there but but you know take lessons from hector you know he learned it the hard way but stay away from that if you can oh yeah quick break here Hector and I are super excited to announce our first sponsor of the show Drata when do you have insight into your compliance security and risk postures if it's right before an audit you're on the same boat as many other organizations with Drata G2's highest rated cloud compliance software you'll have continuous monitoring and visibility into your risk security controls and audit readiness for standards like SOC 2 ISO 27001, GDPR, HIPAA, and more. Drata can streamline compliance for over 14 frameworks and even automate the custom frameworks and controls you create to meet your organization's unique security needs. With more than 75 native integrations and a risk management solution, you'll have a tool that will scale with you. Countless security professionals from companies like Norton, Lemonade, and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it has been to have Drata as their trusted compliance partner. Listeners of Hacker and the Fed can get 10% off Drata and waive implementation fees at drata.com slash partner slash hacker dash Fed. And we'll include that link in our description. Now back to our show. So, the next story i don't know why the hell you sent it over. You're trying to get us to step in some shit, I think I'll give the audience the title and you can tell me what what you want to talk about on this one. Elon was right uh, charging for a verification is a good idea.
1: <laughs> well, this is a controversial topic. Twitter itself was exploding based off of this topic specifically you know there's and I, this this one thing I want to kind of point out that. It's not just about charging for verification, okay? There's also the charging for MFA access or SMS MFA access, okay? So before we kind of understand what the point of the story is, we kind of need to go over a few points, all right? So should individuals be able to get a blue check or self-verify themselves by paying for a service or a feature, Right. So that's that's the one that's one point that we could kind of bang out the way, because that's really not my major concern. Right. Um, It depends. It depends on the company. If they feel like they want to charge someone to verify their identity by means of payment, then it is what it is. Right. It would allow for bad actors to kind of abuse the system and even impersonate folks. Okay, it's definitely possible. But now it's up to the, the folks at Twitter to identify a way to kind of mitigate a lot of that fraud. But here's another good point. If Twitter does this right, where the payment will have to be verified and the identity has to be verified, um, I think this is what Meta wants to do, right? And then, you know, they also want to charge something, three ninety nine. dollars like in Meta's case, Snapchat's case. Um, and I think with, with Twitter, it's like 8 bucks a month or so. Well,
0: yes, Snapchat already has theirs out, and Meta's coming out soon with paid subscriptions for both Instagram and Facebook.
1: Oh yeah. You know, and again, it's up to the companies and it's up to you if you want to participate in that. Um, I personally won't. I would have if I wanted to support the companies, right? So if I want to support Twitter and and you know, I I would pay the eight bucks. But would I pay the eight bucks for verification itself? No. Is my account currently verified? Yes. But did I pay for that? No. My verification is the legacy verification. So back at some point, somebody at Twitter verified my account, they verified my identity, and then they gave me the blue check mark. But um, if Twitter were to take that away today, would I pay specifically for that? No, but would I pay to support twitter yeah right you know i 'm not really i would say engaged either or like i 'm not like i 'm not you know pro or for that decision but here 's where the real melodrama is, okay It revolves around the fact that there are uh companies out there what they 're called like rogue telcos, okay. And these companies essentially put together or they'll activate a phone number that is for profit. So, for example, Chris, if someone, if I was to give you a phone number and you called it, then the moment you call that number, you are being charged for the call, not me. Okay. Um, and the big scam that Twitter has been trying to deal with, and this is all convoluted, by the way. Right? This whole story is all connected to each other. The problem that Twitter had to deal with is the fact that some scammers have figured out that if you create these for-profit numbers and use it as your SMS number, then request a SMS request, like let's say, uh, uh, you know, every sixty seconds or every two minutes, over thousands of phone numbers, you can actually milk Twitter and any other service that allows this you know, out of money. Twitter and Elon they came out and said that it was anywhere between, you know. Thirty and sixty million dollars a year that Twitter was, you know, basically being defrauded out of because of these phone numbers. So Twitter says, or Elon says, "Well, how about we just start charging people who want to use SMS um, uh, multi-factor authentication, so that we kind of mitigates the potential for uh, bad actors to abuse that system? Because otherwise, how would we really know which numbers are for profit?" And which of these, you know, shady telcos are activating these numbers um, and alerting us of of that fact, which they don't. So, yeah, so the result on Twitter, and I apologize for talking, you know, just so much here, but it's an interesting topic. The result was that InfoSec Twitter, like, blew up. And even some of my friends were either pro the move or against the move. Now, I'll ask you this, Chris. What do you think about it?
0: I don't know. I I am trying kind to of torn. Uh you're going to charge me to have a more secure account, right? This is what, what the it really boils down to.
1: Yeah. I mean ultimately that's what's gonna boil down to.
0: I don't understand from Twitter standpoint why they would want unsecured accounts. I don't see what the benefit to have having unsecured accounts on their network would
1: be. Well, let me just add something here, okay? that Twitter does offer other MFA options, which are free. You could use Google Authenticator on your phone or on your desktop to generate secure codes to log into your account. So if – if uh, and I hope that helps you with, with, with the thinking process here because what it looks like from from my perspective – and I know some of my friends would, would probably debate me on this. What it looks like from my perspective is that Twitter is is looking to phase out SMS authentication overall. You know, it's using the the uh, hey, just pay us you know five bucks a month as as a mechanism to do that because people don't want to pay for SMS MF, MFA.
0: I mean, so I agree with trying to phase out SMS, get people away from that. Uh, while it's better than nothing, I think it's just barely better than nothing. So so I agree with that. So it's sort of a a tax if you want to keep using this service, you're going to pay for it. But if you want to go to a stronger service, then it's free.
1: Exactly. So that's exactly the situation, but there's still debates, right? Because the debate is, well, there's a lot of people that are not tech savvy enough to set up a Google Authenticator uh, app and then use the code from that every time they want to log into Twitter. And I don't know, man, we're in 2023. If we're at that point and you don't know how to install an app and get a code from it, here's the good news, right? I'm not going to admonish you, but here's the good news. There's plenty of videos on YouTube and plenty of documentation on Google that will help you step-by-step on how to use that. I personally, I am on the side where I would rather SMS, MFA be phased out, even if it takes this for that to happen, okay?
0: Yeah, I I agree with you, but is there a way of not having 2FA on Twitter? Maybe I, I I just don't know.
1: Yeah, you can. You can have Twitter without MFA entirely and have an unsecured account, right? You could definitely have that. And in fact, uh, according to the numbers, and I saw I saw different numbers from different people on Twitter. So um, just bear with me, folks. The numbers they may not be accurate, but they're an estimation. But anywhere between like eight and twelve percent of total Twitter users use MFA in some capacity, right? Those numbers could be made up. Let, let's let's keep it at ten percent. Let's say ten percent of total Twitter users actually use MFA in some capacity, right? And let's say that uh, a, a smaller percentage of that uh, of, the, of that number actually uses SMS MFA or multi-factor authentication. Uh, so we're talking about a, a pool of of users here, not the majority, and, and more than likely a minority of users that use SMS uh, SMS multi-factor authentication. So the impact here is going to be on a small group of people, but still, it's it's created enough controversy that folks are now looking at. Google Authenticator or other authentication methods, right, which I think is great.
0: So let me ask you from this standpoint. I I took my mother out to dinner last weekend, and we went to a a restaurant by her house. It was very nice. Um, And I noticed at the end of the bill, there was a service fee on the end of it. And I had never seen a service fee. And I reverse engineered the the numbers, uh, and it came out to the service fee was three and a half percent doing a little bit of further thinking. And I asked my waiter and all that. I just wanted to know what the service fee was for. It's because I used a credit card. So historically, you know, maybe five, six years ago, you know, that fee would just be baked into the prices, you know, this the rate of doing business. You know, if I'm going to be a business, I'm going to accept credit cards. I know that I'm not going to get compensated the full amount, but now they're just adding that charge on there. Um, almost like a, you know, benefit. If you pay cash, you're going to pay less. Um, is, do you think that's all this is? Is Elon? You know, he's a he's a business guy. He's saying, "Hey, it's costing us, you know, five bucks a month to, for the users that to have this telephone system uh, in place. And if you're going to use that telephone system, then you're going to pay for it."
1: Yeah, I would think I, th- I would think that this is part of that, right? I mean, I, I look at it more as mitigation. So, okay, we you, you brought up a great example. I even know of small companies, small pop-up shop businesses that eat that 3.5 service charge, right?
0: Uh, historically companies have for for years. I mean, I know that's why like McDonald's and fast food restaurants like fought back against it, but then they saw how much more business they got if they just ate that fee or just charged 3.5% more for a Big Mac.
1: Exactly, right? So in, in that case, you know, McDonald's or a small mom and pop business um, they're like, OK, well, we need to kind of figure out, are we going to be willing to eat these fees? So in the case of Twitter, are we willing to eat that $60 million a year in SMS fraud? OK, or are we going to try to offset it? Which is what happened in your case, where the company that you went to, the business you went to, um, they're like, well, we're just going to offset that by passing the buck to the client.
0: But wait, what am I missing? What am I missing? Where, where is the $60 million? I know these are just made up numbers for conversation. Sake, but where is the $60 million that that Twitter is suffering in fraud? I see victims are suffering the fraud, but where's Twitter suffering that loss?
1: Because it's actually Twitter's systems that are calling or texting MFA codes to the for-profit phone numbers.
0: I got you. That's where I missed it. That's where I missed. So you put that in the account, forcing Twitter to to text it. I got you.
1: Oh, yeah. So imagine a scenario where you have a bad actor and a bad telco. uh, And there's, you know, I I thought there were a a handful of telcos in the U.S., but apparently there's like dozens of them. Uh, or even more, there's probably hundreds around the world, where they could, on the fly, make for-profit phone numbers. So all you need is one or two bad actors to figure that out. They'll sign up for the service, create for-profit numbers in the thousands, and then kind of connect that to its service. And now the service has to pay the fees for the for-profit, and the bad actor is getting a paycheck at the end of the month, right? It's, It's pretty bizarre. I've known about this for quite some time, but I've never seen it on such a scale like this.
0: Do you think Twitter is making a security conscious decision to not just kill SMS MFA?
1: No, I think this is a strictly business decision.
0: No, but I'm saying they they could have just killed it. They said, "Okay, there's a fraud being against us. If you want to use MFA on Twitter, then you're going to have to use Google Authenticator or one of those. You know, they could have just easily done that, but they've kept it alive at, you know, a a price point where they're going to say, well, people won't want to pay this extra five bucks, so they'll stop using it. But some people may.
1: That is such a good point because you're right. Elon Musk and his team could have easily just disabled SMS multi factor authentication entirely, right? Um, I'm not sure why he didn't. Maybe he's thinking of those folks that are not technically savvy, the folks that don't know what Google Authenticator is that's free. I'm not so sure. I, I you know, I would I would love to speak with him for about two minutes and ask him that question.
0: Well, I know Elon listens to the show, so Elon, write us in at questions at hacker in the Fed. Let us know. Let let our audience know why uh, why we didn't just kill SMS authentication.
1: <laughs> there you go. That works.
0: Wait, what are you laughing at? You don't think he listens?
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure he's a listener.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a behind the scenes. Listener. He's friends with Lex, and I know Lex listens. So you know, we'll, we'll, the message will get there. Hopefully, he'll write into us. How much investigation and due diligence are you going to do if we get anything, an email from it says at uh, Elon at Twitter.com?
1: Oh yeah, we're definitely going to investigate the hell out of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so hopefully we get that. We'll have an. I think we'll have an answer for you guys next week on uh, on on the why Twitter took this approach.
1: <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. definitely.
0: So Hector, you sent me over a great. A cybersecurity information sheet. It was put out by the NSA, the United States National Security Agency. Um, And I I think some people will just mistrust it just based on that. But they sent out uh, the best practices for securing your home network. Really, you know, interesting because, you know, I get a lot of these questions, uh, you know, sent into us about how do I secure my own network? Um, I have a lot of you know, people in my personal life that ask the same questions. How do we make this secure? How do, you know, what can I do? Uh, this was a really, really good sheet. And I, I recommend all our listeners, you know, look in the description and pull out the URL uh, for this sheet because there's some, some really strong advice, advice that Hector and I have given you now for the last few months, but, but some, some other stuff added on. So I appreciate you sending that over. And, you know, let's discuss this a little bit for the audience.
1: Yeah, let's do that. And and the one thing I'll say is, yes, I know a lot of people have distrust for the NSA. uh, But over the years, they've released some really great tools and um, documentation. For those of you out there that do reverse engineering or even programming in general, you might be aware of the Ghidra projects. Fantastic tool, works very well. Um, And the NSA got a lot of flack for it when it first came out. But I know a ton of researchers that actually use it. So... Big kudos for them to convert, uh, to them for kind of releasing this uh, this um, this kind of sheets and best practices for securing your home network. A lot of this stuff, Chris, and I'll just go into it here. A lot of the stuff just makes sense, right? In fact, a lot of the things that they kind of bring up in the in the report are things that you and I have talked about here and there. So it, it would be cool to kind of go over some of the the main points. And uh, hopefully get that point across to the, to the audience.
0: Yeah, so I'll start with one of the first ones that sticks out to me, which people should be doing. It's a little bit more on the technical side, but it, it, it's, you know, with all of the things we're adding to our networks, and we'll talk about that, the different se- segmentation of networks, but limiting administrative access to internal networks only, meaning that if someone tries to get into your computer and gain admin control, that they have to be on the internal network. That, that, that's a huge point.
1: It is. And it's extremely important. You have, you know, you have no idea. I mean, you actually do have idea, Chris, but <laughs> if, you. You use a, <laughs> if you have a service, if you use a service like Shodan or um, some of similar search engines like Shodan, uh, the cool thing is that, well, it's not cool, but what you'll see is a lot of network devices that are out there that have accessible administrative consoles. And these are ripe for exploitation by bad actors. Um, in fact, when you look at some of the biggest botnets that are being u- kind of used by bad actors today to do the, to do things like would obviously distributed denial of service attacks, or you know intercepting and listening to your communications, these botnets are usually made up of either smart devices or these kind of network firewalls or network devices that have admin portals or consoles available. That's a major problem. So, yes, so one of the main focuses uh, that you should have as soon as you buy a device and set up your home network is making sure to read through the documentation they provide you, look at the manual, get access to your console, and make sure that you limit access only to internal networks only and not externally. You want zero access from the outside end. Now, if you are a uh, a traveler, an occasional traveler that has to access parts of your network then you could always use some sort of VPN technology, which we could have discussed in another episode. But in the time being, yes, you want to limit the external attack surface. You want to make sure that devices are routinely updated. Check it once a week, log in once a month, make sure the firmware is up to date. Because otherwise, if you have a device connected to the internet that's accessible to a bad actor, more than likely you will be compromised over time.
0: Hector, I, I need to emphasize that one so much. People forget about it. They get these routers, these home routers from their their internet service provider or, you know, they get them in the mail and they just plug them in and play. They don't change the local password and they don't change any settings. And then they never log in for years. It just sits on the network, never updating, never changing because it's set to only update when you update it. Uh, We need to be logging into the home routers, you know, understand the book that came with it, you know, it's it's, it's probably a simple, you know, IP address, you just plug into your browser, and it logs you into the the console. I don't know anyone besides you and I, uh, in my life, that is actually doing this. Oh, sorry, my friends at Naxo. They also are doing this in their home networks, but outside of that, uh, I know Mom Tarbell's not doing it. Uh, I, I know friends that that aren't doing it. They, they, you know, I come over and they put me on their regular home network. Um, no segmentation. It, it's just very eye opening to me that no one is administering and logging into and controlling that access point to their house.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in the same boat. I mean, I know maybe a handful of folks in my personal life that do exactly that. Um, and they're just paranoid. You know, they're paranoid. They, they don't want to deal with a compromise. They work at very important places and they don't want to be the person. They don't want to be the reason why their corporate network was compromised because they're working from home.
0: But I completely disagree with the message you just put across. It's it, they shouldn't be paranoid. It shouldn't be just paranoid people doing it. Everyone should be doing this. You, you don't don't label people that are, are securing their access point. I mean, this is the front door to your Internet. Log into that thing, learn that thing, secure that thing, change passwords. It's not just for paranoid people. It, everyone should be
1: doing this. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, basically what I was saying is that the, the people that in my life that are doing it are actually paranoid. Um, you know, they everybody else is like, yeah, it's okay. I mean, what's the worst case scenario? It just works. It plugged and played and boom, I'm done. I can
0: get on no. the internet.
1: Great. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, but it's really about including like security hygiene into your life. There are some folks out there that will buy a device like, a, like, a, like the Google Wi-Fi, for example. Great, great awesome uh, device. You have Google Wi-Fi. You have other similar services, uh, Google Nest and so on. You purchase these and they don't really offer you like a web console you can access from your browser. Okay? And that's fine. They usually do include apps. And you install the app on your phone and you can start to modify the settings from your phone. It works the same exact way as, as Chris just mentioned, um, and it also allows you to define, um, you know, the security policy. You know, you want to make sure, again, to limit any external, you know, a, a potential attacks, but you also want to make sure that you're aware of what's on your network, when it's on your network. And Chris brought up a good point. When you have guests coming to your home and they're just hopping on your internal network, as much as, you know, your be- you, you trust your best friend, you may not want to trust your best friend's devices. So you want, what you want to do is create a guest network that's segmented from your main internal network. And the guest network can be as simple as clicking a button or two on your app um, or in the web console. And it'll take you 20 seconds to set up. You give them the password and voila.
0: Hector, it's, it's huge. It happened to me yesterday. I was at a buddy's house. Uh, I've known this kid since second grade. Uh, we've been friends. Bumped our phones, let me write on his network. I didn't, I barely even had to ask. He offered it. I didn't even ask. I was like, oh man, your Wi-Fi, your internet around here, it sucks. He's like, I'll put you on the Wi-Fi. Here you go. On, I'm the last guy you want to trust on your internet. But <laughs> let me well, no, you're the last guy. I'm the second to last guy.
1: Yeah, there you go. So,
0: but so some of this does sound scary. Some of this, you know, oh, logging in and management. They would, they don't do it. In this NSA, you know, prescribed, you know, best practices, it includes a part that would be good for even for Mom Tarbell to work on too. Just reboot the device. Log on the back and turn the switch on and turn it back on. There's a lot of these Wi-Fi, you know, access points that they download the firmware, but they don't take effect until it's rebooted. Once a month, go in there when you, no one's using the internet, turn the power off, leave it off for, you know, 20, 30 seconds, and then turn it back on. Um and it'll update some security firmware in there, hopefully.
1: Yeah, No, that's a great point. And yeah, that's something that I, even I forget. I forget to like, reboot devices that I know um, don't automatically apply a patch unless it's rebooted, the device is rebooted. So that that's always something that even I myself have to, you know, kind of uh, train myself to to do more often than not, you know. Uh, the same applies for, like, smart devices. If you have smart bulbs and you have a bulb running 24-7, yeah, maybe it's time to turn it off. You know, let the device power down when it comes back up, you know, hopefully, um, especially if you use like a Philips U or so. They also have an app where you could update the firmware right from the app and, you know, get it back online with the latest version. That's exactly the kind of stuff that you want to do on a day to day. So, uh, like I said, most of these things we've already discussed with, with the audience, they kind of get the drift. But what I also like about this document is that it sets a structure, right? When you and I are having a, a, you know, an informal conversation, you kind of go back and forth on a topic. Like, yeah, make sure your passwords are strong. Make sure you have MFA. Make sure you update your router here and there, right? But this document is actually pretty solid because it has a structure to the madness. It tells you exactly what to look for, what you should probably include in your day-to-day uh, operations in life. And you know hopefully, if you followed all the different ideas they provided you, you would have a much stronger you know local network and uh, hopefully uh, office network in general.
0: I'd love it if they followed a few of them. Just improve their personal security just a little bit. Stop being the low-hanging fruit.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> all right, Hector. Another great episode in the books. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation today. If the listeners have questions for us, I think I mentioned it like four times in this episode already. Uh, I know Elon's going to reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. I uh, look forward to hearing from Elon this week, and all the the fakers out there will try to fake Elon uh Emails to me, I'm sure, this week, so that'll be fun. Uh, New episode every Thursday. Download, subscribe, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. But Hector, good, fun conversation. Guys, check out the links in the description, especially for this NSA cybersecurity information sheet about the best practice for securing your home network great resource to have i would set a bookmark for it when other people ask you uh about you know what are some of the things i can do i heard you that you're a hacker in the fed listener so you must know about personal security send over one a link to the podcast and two this link
1: there you go i'm with it (laughs)
0: look forward to talk to you uh next week uh so cheers
1: all right my friend cheers